Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. So before we get started, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, as we mentioned last week, we do have spots available for Return to the Source. We've sold a couple, so we're down to two spots left. There's a really special opportunity. Um, this is our premier event of the year. It's absolutely incredible for reconnecting and sharing all the themes that we we really care about. And um, we sold it out initially in just under a week, so if you're interested, you know, please reach out to us at info at Evolve Move Play um, to schedule an interview to see if you can join us. So that, that that out of the way, our guest this week is John Verbeke. So this is our second podcast with Verbeke. Verbeke is a cognitive scientist and cognitive psychologist from the University of Toronto. One of his main interests is the question of meaning. So he currently has a series of lectures called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. The idea here is that there is kind of a, a systematic problem in our culture with deriving a sense of deep meaning in our lives. And that this is, um, this is upstream of a lot of the biggest problems that we face. So if we can figure out how to deal with this, this is going to be profoundly important. And John looks back to the history of philosophy the history of wisdom traditions all over the world as a guide towards how we can overcome the meaning crisis. If you're interested in getting a kind of an overview of what he does, check out our first interview with him. In this one, I wanted to dig deeper into a few specific subjects. So the first primary subject that we're going to look at is kind of questioning the idea of the meaning crisis. How do we really establish that this is happening? And I wanted to just really ground this conversation through that. And I think John did a fantastic job of answering my questions. The second thing is we dig into John's um, scientific research around what is called relevance realization in cognitive science. And this is really at the core of a lot of what I'm thinking about in how we organize physical training in order to gain the most benefits from it. And also all of the kind of wisdom tradition ideas that John is talking about. So this gets a little bit technical, but it's super fascinating. There's tons of really powerful insights here in how we kind of orient ourselves towards dealing with complex challenges. And what's the difference between a complex or ill-defined challenge and a well-defined or complicated problem? And I think this is just incredibly insightful. So the, the third part of our conversation then moves into how we can start setting up an ecology of practices to help ourselves engage in self-transformation and wisdom development and what wisdom means and how it's different from from just intelligence or knowledge and there's a there's a way in which the themes from the scientific uh, work that John does start to kind of be illustrated in greater depth as we move into that 
last part of the conversation. And I think it just becomes incredibly valuable. This is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. And without further ado, I want to give you guys John Verveke. Uh Well, the first thing I want to do is I wanted to ground the conversation around the meaning crisis a little bit because sure. I felt like we took that as a prior at the beginning of the last conversation. And I think sure, it's sure. worth interrogating it a little bit more deeply. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not f- deeply familiar with the ideas. Um, so, you know, when I talk to kind of my, my intellectual friends right now, it seems like there's this universal feeling that we're in a kind of crisis phase. There's a, there's a chaoticness. There's a, a sense of, of, of things disintegrating. Um, yeah. And, I think that that it would be very easy for us to just accept the narrative because you keep hearing it from other people. Of course, of course, yeah. But I think that, you know, that might, you know, you could posit that that's just a thing that people tend to feel, right? We tend to, there's always eschatological. um, Sure, I mean, at least in the West, because that's part of the Christian heritage. Right, yeah. the eschatological ideas, right? Yeah. And I mean, we, and we've had we've had secular versions of that in Nazism and communism. So yeah. we're, we're we're really drenched in that way of thinking. I acknowledge that completely. Yes. Yeah. And so, so yeah. the last time when we were talking about the meaning crisis, we were talking a lot about kind of crises that are occurring in the here and now, right? Like right. suicide rates dramatically yep. increasing in girls ten to fourteen years old. Um, yep. And so, other groups too. Other groups yeah. too. Uh, and, yeah. and the, yeah, and we talked a lot about that. Yeah, so Chris and I, in fact, we're the most recent thing we videoed, which will be coming out, I think, at episode 26 and 27. We went through that symptomology. And instead of just doing it as I've done it, we've done it in the past, which is ad hoc, we've actually tried to lay it out in a organized schema in terms of all the different things, like, uh, you know, the, the stuff about suicide, the mental health crisis, the addiction crisis, the, the you know, the, 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 the virtual exodus, the exodus into virtual worlds, right? Um, the, 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 the rise of attempts to create meta-narratives that are misfiring uh, in many ways. Um, and then, uh, and then more, um, what you might more call more reflective responses, like people like you, the mindfulness movement, the authentic discourse movement, things like that. You can see that what they're all trying to do is to do what seems to be the first thing we need to do. We need to turn this vague sense that we all have into something articulate. That's the first thing. Yeah. And then we have to see if we can map it into current symptomology like i was just mentioning and then we also have to see if we can give a plausible genealogy of it if we could do all of that in ways that's empirically you know empirically responsible then i think we make a case for the meaning crisis yeah so that's that's what i'm interested in so i'm you know i this came up for me actually i was i was reading um yeah uh, mahali's book and this was written in uh, i think 97 uh or or 90 90 90 1990, yeah. So that was written in the early 90s, and um, and he goes through a a uh, a long set of social indicators that he says are are all going really badly, which was the case yep. in 1990, and yep. he attributes them to this uh, this loss of meaning, which yep. um, had happened through you know the you know one of the cases that Chicksonholly is sort of making is that traditionally we got meaning through religion, and he thinks that this. Sure. Is- efficient anymore yep yep and he um he you know he he points out rises in crime all these things but all the but a lot of the social indicators that he points out um started to improve very quickly after this book yeah. was published the, the crime ones yeah yeah and then another book that um that i really like the road to wigan pier like when george orwell talks about machine civilization 
and why we don't like living in the same civilization in the end of this book. You know, that maps very closely onto what people are talking about now. And obviously we've talked about Nietzsche and what he had to say. Mm -hmm. so, so my, so, so if we, we can see that, that things kind of have these, this tendency towards crisis or this feeling of, of things going wrong. And then we can see that, that there's these recursions or these reversals mm -hmm. that allows us to like push back on say the, like, you know, the Pinker narrative is things that are, are actually steadily getting better. The enlightenment mm -hmm. was, was the, the, yeah. his book enlightenment now yeah, yeah yeah you know enlightenment was the pan the enlightenment was the panacea and you know yes there are problems and there's always things that we can solve but, but basically the stuff that we figured out then is going to continue to carry us into an optimal future um and so i oh, tell me when you want me to respond i'll, I'll let you finish <laughs> your argument first yeah um, so so this is i think this is a it, it it's a like to try to kind of get the empirical argument that really makes the case that, that, that we are, that this is a meaning crisis as opposed to a, just a persistent uh, problem in human life that we're always having some things that are going to go wrong and how do we fix okay. it? Well, well, there's a, there's a potential issue there that uh, I want to be clear on. I mean, uh, the part of the thesis of the meaning crisis is that, there's a component of it that you can call the perennial, we, in fact, we call it the perennial problems, cool. right? These are, these are perennial problems that pe people yeah. face cross-historically, uh, cross-culturally, uh, problems of self-deception, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. We can get into those in more detail later if you want, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 th and those are just endemic to being a human being. And then, so the thesis isn't, the thesis is not trying to sort of completely distinguish the meaning crisis from the perennial problems. In fact, what it's saying as a thesis is, we've lost a lot of the cultural framework that gave us groups, practices, guidance, texts for you know, creating ecologies or psychotechnologies that allow us to ameliorate and address uh, these, these perennial problems. So uh, it, 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 I, I'm not trying to compete with a thesis that says, well, human beings have always had issues of despair, right? They've always had to face their mortality. They've always had to face self-deception. That, that's not the thesis. The thesis is not, and now we're something new from those. The thesis is, no, no, those have always been the case. And what we had is we have, we've, we create large structures of psychotechnologies for, for giving people, you know, well, at least culturally validated. I'm not claiming scientific validity because most of this was ensconced within religious traditions. But what we had was, you know, traditionally validated. That's the word I'm looking for. Sets of psycho, psych, sets of psychotechnologies so people could address these perennial problems. So I want to be clear about that. I'm not right. That it's a very different thesis than saying, oh no, this is something like you know completely separate from that. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. So what you so what we have to first look at is you know the some of the major assumptions in, that go into Pinker's argument and first question those, you brought up a couple of them last time, right? Um, it, you know, the fact that the, the one in the enlightenment ideas and you know, you have to be careful with Pinker because he chooses his graphs very carefully, right? Uh, right? Um, as many critics have pointed out. Um, so um, the, the thing is we, there, and this is really interesting, notice, uh, and you can even see recent evidence for this, that sort of overall measures of happiness, right, and measures of how well people think they're doing, do not track well with things like gross domestic product and, and things like that. Affluence is actually a very poor predictor. Now, 
once people are in general out of poverty. So affluence does predict a, a huge increase in people's sense of meaning in life and in their sense of uh, well-being, right? But only to a certain point. And then beyond that, it doesn't do that. So you've seen you know, the, the American economy actually doing very well. And yet, and in fact, in some ways, the world economy doing very well. And yet, that the, you know that you've probably seen that recent report. You know we've gone up in worldwide in measures of you know sadness and worry and anxiety. And so what's going on? What's going on there? Right. So you you, you have to ask the question: it, Is some of the fundamental assumptions even in Pinker's model are, are they actually legitimate assumptions? I think some of them are very questionable assumptions. First of all, mm-hmm. secondly, then you can say then you go you turn to a Durkheimian thesis that's still in in place, right? So Durkheim, in his classic work, Suicide, argued and provided, you know, all this demographic evidence that, you know, there's a, there is a, I don't know what to call it because you have to be careful about the terminology here. Let's call it a factor that what people commit suicide, yes, for obviously for their individual psychological issues, their circumstances, but there seems to be, and that's what the book tried to show, that suicide is also driven by a very significant degree, by the way in which your, how well your society feels ordered to you. And when that is lacking, he called it anomie, you know, a loss of order, nomos. And, and, and that, that, is, that is still the case. And, that, and that's, that, that is buttressed by recent work. Uh, Tatiana Schnell has recent work showing, and this is, this is very interesting. So many people think the route, the route to suicide goes like this. You go into depression, and then you sort of, you get meaninglessness, and then, then you commit suicide. And that, that, nobody's denying that. But what she was able to show is that you can, people can have a meaning crisis without having any of the attendant symptoms of clinical depression, and independently, that can drive suicide. Independently, that can drive suicide. So you've got, you've got this data about individuals, right, can be driven just by a lack of meaning to suicide, and then you have Durkheim's, you know, still standing thesis that, you know, anomic structures are predictive of suicide. And then what I can say is, well, I can predict why the suicide's going up. And your enlightenment position, Pinker, should be that it should be going down, right? But it's not for these groups, right? And so I, I, I don't want to take each and every claim that Pinker makes because that's going to, that, that would take yeah, up all of us. Yeah, I, I'm more, I guess, I, I agree with you, right? Like, I'm, I'm on your side on this argument, but... No, I, keep playing devil's advocate. I, I, that's good. I'm, I'm, um, I have this question in my mind of like, okay, uh, so we, we have the problem that there are perennial problems. Yes. And then we have the problem that maybe there are problems that are specific to the now, right? Mm-hmm. And we always have this ability to select the narratives that we're, that we're paying attention to, right? We can always yeah. select enough negative information to feel like things are going really poorly. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we, um, how do we distinguish when we are focused on a real problem? And well, no, no, here's how, here's how I've got, no, I have a clear answer to that. Go, so you look for the perennial answers to the perennial problems. Yeah. And then if you have in your society clear structures and pathways for cultivating those answers, then you can say, ah, no, you shouldn't be saying that about our society. But if, in all honesty, you look in the society and say, I don't see any clear way of cultivating that perennial answer in my society, then that is a way, I think, of giving a clear argument as to what's wrong right now. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't, if you say, no, no, perennial problems, okay, then let's play by those rules. 
here's a perennial problem. What's one, uh, uh, so here's a set of perennial problems. What's the, one, you know, some of the, what's one of the classic answers? Well, the classic answer is the deep cultivation of wisdom, right? And then, and then, and then, and you've seen me do this. And then I say, okay, where, where in our culture do we have wisdom institutions, clear wisdom pathways, you know, a, a clear educational system where people all still value this. I know this from the research, but where is that clearly articulated, expressed, developed, venerated, taught, you know, reflected upon, corrected? Where is that in our culture? Mm -hmm. Now, that's how you establish it. I, I, how else would you establish it? So I would turn this argument and say, around and say, what kind of evidence would convince you? That seems to me about the kind of evidence. You give a design argument. Here's the perennial problems. Here's across cultures, across history, the perennial answer. Do we have the machinery of this in our culture? No, we don't. Did we at one point? Yes, we did. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good answer. I mean, I think that in order to, you, you have to then lay out the perennial problems and what the perennial answers were. But I think that if people want that, they can go and uh, watch the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Like, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Right? That's, that's where that's going to go. Um, and I think it does a fantastic job. So I just wanted to, to thank you that problem a little bit because it just... Um, no, no, right. Yeah. One of the things I like about what you do is exactly this. I mean, I want people to see that this is not just uh, that there's a, there's, there's argument. I mean, people are, people will disagree with the argument. I get that because yeah. that's just the nature of intellectual discourse. Right. But I want people to see that I'm being intellectually responsible. There's an argument here. There's a methodology here, right? This is a thought out position that I'm articulating. Very cool. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit here and go into relevance realization, right? Which is sure. the center of your or your work, and um, you know that's a term that I've heard you use. In, yeah, haven't necessarily gone deep into prior to you know just reading some of your scientific work before this uh, interview. What you specifically mean by that, and how central that is to the 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 thesis that you're making, which is yeah, yeah, you know. Essentially, what it sounds like to me you're saying is that at the center of the, the human enterprise of figuring out wisdom of anything, uh, we have this problem of recognizing what is relevant. And, yes. And I think of this as uh, it's very congruent with what has been kind of driving my work over the last couple of years, which has been this question of complexity, right? I think... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we live in a world that is too complex for us to, uh, to, to ever understand completely, but we have to operate. So we always have to operate under uncertainty. Yeah, that's always been the case. Yes. And, that, and it will always be the case. Yeah. So, you know, I ran into Peterson. Peterson's talking a lot about this. Um, I have also been really influenced by the self-defense thinker, John Boyd. who talks a lot about this. Um, another self-defense teacher, Rory Miller, uh, who's mm. a friend of mine. Um, Chicks and Holly, you know, there, yeah, yeah. there's all, over and over again the central theme. And so, you know, I was talking to you about Nikolai Bernstein the last time, right? And, and mm -hmm. Bernstein is basically the person who made the point that when you, that in order for uh, a human body to actually control itself in the environment, it has to have heuristics that allow it to figure out relevant motor solutions. Yes. Actually, um, an infinite set of potential degrees of freedom in the human body are virtually infinite. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and it's not, I, I, I totally agree with that argument. And, and 
I'm not going to burden your listeners with, but, but if you go into, like if you're doing cognitive psychology, cognitive science, like you'd study attention and what's the core problem of attention? You know, the selection, well, selection of what? Well, selection out of all of the information, the relevant information. Oh, well, what's the core issue? Well, once you get it in there, where does it go? It goes into working memory. Well, what's working memory trying to do? Well, it's doing relevance filtering. It's trying to filter the relevant information from the irrelevant information. That's why chunking gets stuff through working memory, right? It, and, and, and does does, when it goes into long-term memory, does it just sit there statically? No, it's reconstructive. Well, how, why is it reconstructive? It's reconstructive in terms of how it's relevant to the context, right? And then when you're trying to use all of that to solve your problems, what's the issue? Oh, well, the search space in my, for my problem solution is combinatorial explosive. I have to somehow, like, again and again. And so that's, what, that's how that came to me as the key thing, right? It's just like, no, all of these, all of these groups keep, like, all of these different problems keep, zeroing in on this core issue. Yeah, can you just uh, briefly for the audience explain what combinatorial explosion is? Oh, so combinatorial explosion, uh, so the, the, this is one of the, um, I often put the work of Newell and Simon at the beginning of many of my lectures or talks because I, I, I hold it as a gold standard for how to do sort of good cognitive science. So Newell and Simon were the people that really started I mean, Turing did it in an important way, but Newell and Simon really started the artificial intelligence project. They tried to build uh, the first general problem solver, the, the, yeah. right? And this is, this is way back when. And in order to do that, they, they, they tried to analyze and formalize and mechanize problem solving. And then what they did is they analyzed problems into four components. I have a, an initial state, I have a goal state, right? And what I, I can, there's things like, so in, I can perform an action called operators or operations, and that'll change my initial state in some way to some other state. And then what I want is a sequence of changes of state that will change my initial state into my goal state while obeying things called path constraints. I won't get into that right now. Now, that all sounds like sort of like, yes, yeah, so what? And, and, and that's the thing. As long as we're working at the level of common sense, our problems just seem like just like that. But what, when you actually do it uh, as a formal analysis, right? the problem space, the number of alternative pathways you have to search becomes astronomically large. So just to give an example, Keith Holyoke did this with a standard game of chess. So the formula for calculating this is like F to the D. F is the number of operations at any time, and D is the number of steps. So at any time on average, you can make about, you have 30 options in a chess game. And think about how limited a chess game is, right? They have 30 options, and on average, there's like 60 turns. So the number of pathways is 30 to the power of 60, which is bigger than the number of atomic particles in the universe, right? That's combinatorial explosive. Now, what you can't do is you can't algorithmically search that. I'm using algorithm in the sense that Newell and Simon have do. The term is bled a bit. Originally, an algorithm is a problem-solving method that is guaranteed to find a solution. And a heuristic is a problem-solving method, because you introduced heuristic a moment ago. A heuristic is a problem-solving method that improves your chance, but doesn't guarantee. So playing chess, a heuristic is control the center board. I can control the center board and still lose. So I, most of my problems can't be solved algorithmically. So I, could, I couldn't pure math or pure logic my way through most of my problems, because they work in terms of standards of certainty. So I'd have to change the entire search space, right? Mm -hmm. It's combinatorial explosive. So here's the thing, part of it is, yes, you use heuristics, but part of it also really has to do with how you formulate your problem in the first place. What all this is pointing to is this. This is what you do, and this is what has obsessed me as a scientist from the beginning. You some, here's all that information. I imagine this is some of that, that whole space. You somehow search 
a very small sliver of it. You know, you're not perfect. To be perfect, you'd have to search the whole space. You can't. But you somehow search a very small sliver. You don't search all the other space and reject it because that would take too long. You somehow zero in on the relevant information. And that is, and then, and, and, and what's powerful is that's dynamic and self-correcting because sometimes what you initially think is the relevant information you realize isn't and you have to correct yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so from a, like from a motor learning standpoint to give the audiences movement oriented, you know, essentially when you're learning a new movement task, your, uh, your body has this huge degrees of freedom that it can engage in. And all the combinations. So you got, you got all these degrees of freedom for each element. And then think about not only that, you've got all the possible right combinations and permutations of those combinations. And, yeah. and the thing is, and people say, well, I wouldn't do anything like this. Well, why not? Right? Here, but no, no, that's a serious question. Well, and they'll say, well, it's obvious I shouldn't. Obviousness is not part of the physics of the world. How your brain makes things obvious to you is exactly the problem that needs to be explained. Common, yeah. sense, common sense can rely on the fact that obvious things are obvious to us. Cognitive science has to, has to explain how it is that this, you know, doing this is obvious, I should do this, and not doing that is obvious. Like, why is that obvious? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then, you know, from a, from a practical standpoint, it's about essentially refining our heuristics and helping us move forward through that, right? It, so, it, it's more than just that. It's you want to pair your heuristics together in, in, in a dynamic pattern. Uh, see, the problem with heuristic, heuristics, and there, this is usually paired together in the scientific research, research is called heuristics and biases. The yep. thing about heuristics is, so think about the chess game, right? So they, they get, you know, control the center board. So what do I do? I make the center board the focus of my attention. Now that biases me. I beat somebody in chess a while ago because they were concentrating on the, the center board and I played around the periphery. Mm-hmm. So a heuristic, it's called the no free lunch theorem. Like where, if the bias, if, if it biases you in the right way, yay. But for all the times that it helps you, you, you pay an almost equal amount of time where it's misleading you. So you also have to get your, your heuristics sort of in checks and balance relationships to each other, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of this seems to, and this is where, you know, the work is still ongoing, but a lot of this seems to have to do with how you formulate your problem in the first place. What, what, like, what, what are the key features, structures, relations that you give to your function and uh, you, you give your problem in the first place? Yeah, so reading through your, your paper on, relevance realization you talked about like three sort of opponent heuristics is that yeah. what to think about them they're more cost functions than heuristics oh. um, um, so <clears throat> that's kind of an important difference theoretically uh, because it, it it has to do with sort of where you're pitching again people you know i don't want people to jump all over me because, well i use the term heuristic this way uh, and i acknowledge it right away these terms have sort of family resemblance usage now mm-hmm. not as precise as they used to be um, but uh, I think talking about a cost function tells you like the level of analysis that's working at. Let, let me try and do it very, very quickly. Relevance realization is ultimately not going to be explained, I would argue, and my co-authors would argue, sort of at the level of representational thought. Mm-hmm. It's not even going to be uh, sort of captured at the level of computational processing, you know, 
running inferences according to rules. It's ultimately has to do, and I think this is why, I, I, I hope you love this because this is so germane to you. It has to do with the bioeconomic level, right? And logistical constraints. So if you're talking about logistical norms like efficiency and resiliency, you're not, you're, you should be talking about sort of cost functions, right? How much, right, you're, how, how much you're trying to manage your bioeconomic resources in a logistical fashion. Yeah, so I mean, so your your the three cost functions that you talked about, uh, you know, is you you call it, talked about cognitive scope, yep. uh, cognitive tempering, yep. and cognitive prioritization, and yeah. it, it, there's math in there, and there's all these things that I'm not <laughs> yeah. super uh, conversant in this literature. So it took me a, f a little bit to to kind of grok what you were talking about there, and I'm still not 100% certain on the cognitive prioritization, but I feel like it maps to some of the ideas that that I'm playing with in. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, I think so. And, and, and I mean, so to get, I want to, I want to be clear that that paper in particular was written with Tim Lillicrap and Blake Richards. And part of it was Tim's uh, insight. I was working on this. It's a very important insight. And I'm, I'm trying to uh, give uh, Tim Lillicrap is, by the way, like a, the, one of the rising stars um, in um, he's a former student of mine and then a co-author, right? Um, one of the rising stars in the artificial intelligence world. Um, like really on the cutting edge of what you can get out of neural networks and things like mm -hmm. that. Cool. Uh, and so I want to get to Tim's insight. So I was approaching this problem, all right, uh, very top down. Like I'm trying to solve it very theoretically and conceptually and I'm getting this argument. Um, but then Tim said, you know, John, a lot of the solution you're proposing, this is actually strategies people are already using in the artificial intelligence world, right? right? And, and it's just that they're using them sort of, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to be dismissive here, so I, I, if I get the wrong adjective, please be sort of forgiving. But they're using it sort of very practically, right? And they haven't sort of abstracted it to the level of a full-blown theoretical explanation. That's why we entitled the, the, the paper uh, Relevance Realization and the Emerging Framework in Cognitive Science. We, weren't, we were trying to say, it's not only that this sort of works as a top-down theoretical argument, you can see these strategies emerging in sort of cutting-edge AI, and that, you know, and then that's how you get the argument. And I also want to be clear, just so your readers don't misunderstand, we weren't proposing that the set we were offering is like exhaustive. It's, it's exemplary. It's exemplary, right? It's supposed to be exemplary, not exhaustive. Perfect. Yeah. So um, the, uh, there's a couple of interesting themes that you tapped there. One is the idea this is something that I got uh, that uh, Peterson articulates really well in Maps of Meaning, which is the idea that often knowledge evolves through practice and then only later is effectively abstracted. Yes. And, and this is something that's very interesting to me in kind of the work that we do is this idea right. that, you know, so I, uh, I, you know, I taught parkour indoors. I took people out into nature and then implicitly I started discovering yep. Yep. something. I was, you know, it was essentially play and exploration that yeah. revealed some new principles that were applicable to my teaching. Totally. And, and then I, I, I used that for a while, and then I started to try to kind of theorize it, to articulate it. And then I was able to go and find ecological dynamics and find all these other things and find theory that explained what I was experiencing. But I was only so convinced by the theory because it, it mapped to what I had experienced. Oh, that's and, excellent. And, and, and I mean... So if I can bridge between that and, 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 and the theory going back, right? So there's work by like Siegler and others, you know, uh, about children learning and, and play. 
And, and what they do is they, they, they often do this strategy. Uh, they, kids won't stick with this first strategy that sort of works in getting the goal. What they'll do is they'll introduce variation and then they'll subject the variation to some sort of selective pressure. Which, which is very much like what you're doing, right? You're going out there, you're introducing variation, and then you're putting some selective pressure, and then the abstraction sort of emerges out of that selective pressure you put on the variation, right? Yeah. Now, that is completely apropos because, I mean, we can go back to the specifics of the model if you want at some point, but I, I wanted to pick up on your suggestion about how much it relates to your work, right? I mean, the, the core argument about the way the brain does relevance realization is that same analogy. I mean, Siegler's analogy, right, for learning, right, is, is basically an evolutionary model, right? You, the thing about Darwin's theory, you, you introduce variation, and then you put selective pressure on it, right? And then, right, and that's, I mean, sorry, this is way too simplistic. And when the full-blown lecture comes out on the video series, people can see it. But that's sort of like, the core of what you're doing in, in getting deep learning within neural networks, right? You, you take the data, you do a bunch of, you do this selective killing off, if you'll allow me the analogy, it's only meant as an analogy. I do this massive data compression to try and get some key invariants, and then I run variations on it. Mm -hmm. I run variations on it, I open it up again, and then I crunch it down with compression, and then I, and that's, and you basically, right, just like the way the kids learn, just the way, just like the way you've been crafting right you're doing you're basically doing a sped up version of evolution and what the brain is doing isn't so much doing this argumentative stuff the brain is trying to set up these constraints selection and variation so that sensory motor loop evolves a better fittedness to its environment that's sort of the core of the theory and you can see like again you see it in the kids behavior you see it in what you just articulated mm -hmm. right that that and, and notice how much implication that has for both pedagogy yeah how we should be teaching people but also back to the original thing about okay that tells us something about what if we take it that what people mean by the metaphor of meaning is this sense of being connected well to the environment that's this cognitive fittedness and we know that if, if you increase this in people, right, the sense of coherence, the sense of connectedness, their, their sense of meaning in life goes up. Well, if that is, right, if, if that's what they're talking about when they're talking about meaning, they're talking about, gen, they're talking about what's generated by relevance realization, evolving them to be well-fitted. Now, think about when you're not well-fitted. Well, you would experience absurdity or alienation, loneliness, futility, the hallmarks of a meaning crisis. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that's beautiful. Uh, this is, I feel like this may be tangential, but I think it'll, I think it'll make sense to you and you'll loop it back. So okay. one of the things I've been working on right now is, is kind of an essay on parkour, how it arose and how it kind of has to do with, with this idea of meaning and the meaning crisis. And with, I really want to read this essay, by the way. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Uh, so within that, one of the, I was thinking about, that idea that 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 meaning is relevance to action mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. action very broadly construed yes. right uh because we want to you know because action i mean this is i don't want to interrupt too much but you know the philosophy of action you have to think of action as, as being a multi-scale thing right because action if there's a it can be a physical thing but it can be a very highly symbolic thing etc but go, yeah. go ahead yes I mean, as Peter says, uh, Peterson says in Maps of Meaning, it's, it's relevance to actions or to the schema that organizes actions. Something sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about what kind of kids are experiencing in the day-to-day -day life. And, and I was thinking, 
you know, if, if we're seeking this kind of information, we're seeking this kind of uh, something that allows us to evolve because it gives us that sense of relevance. Mm-hmm. It gives that. And, um, and it seems to me that in the modern world, we have kind of three things that, uh, that, that prevent, prevent effective feedback, right? Um, they're not necessarily bad things. They're useful things. But mm-hmm. we have luxury, we have safety, and we have, um, we have uh, bureaucracy, right? Yeah. So we have, you know, if you go to this area or that area, it doesn't matter, there's a grocery store. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I can loop this very well. So here's the thing. Uh, let's take it back to problem solving, okay? Yeah. And one of the big, what was one of the big um, mistakes of New Orleans Simon? So you know the respect I hold them in, so yeah, yeah. right, so take it within that. They, because they didn't pay it, they thought they, they fell prey to a they fell prey to a heuristic operating in them in a biasing fashion. Yeah. This is the essentialist heuristic. The essentialist heuristic is wherever we have a category, we think that all the members in the category are essentially the same, okay. right? And, and that's true for scientific categories and mathematical categories, mm-hmm. but it's not true as Wittgenstein famously pointed out for games or you know for toys or lots of other categories, right? Um, and so they thought that problem formulation wasn't that important. They didn't really pay that much attention to it because they thought all problems, and listen to my language carefully, all problems were essentially the same, right? And that's just not the case. So there is, right, there, there, there is, there's, a, there's many ways in which problems are different, but here's one important division. There's a distinction between well-defined problems and ill-defined problems. So in a well-defined problem, I have a good enough, good enough meaning that I, I, I can get started. I have a good enough representation of my initial state, the goal state, and the intervening actions I'm supposed to perform that I can undertake to solve the problem. So I take it that for you, because problems are always relative because problems are in the world. They're relative to problem yeah. solvers. So I take it for you, multiplication is a well-defined problem. If I give it to you, you'll be able to identify, oh, that's a multiplication problem. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what the operations are. I know what, how it should end up. I, I know that singing is irrelevant. I know that drawing a platypus will not in any way improve my performance, things yeah. like that. Okay. Now, and I, I'll get back to the, the things you said, right? The luxury and the bureaucracy and all of that, right? So most of our problems, however, even though we are educated to, and we have to be with a lot of, well-defined problems because we're educating kids, but most of our problems are ill-defined problems. We're having an ill-defined problem right now. Have a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the initial state? Well, we don't have one. Okay, so what? What <laughs> what is that problem? Like, what's that problem? Like, okay, what's the goal state? I don't know. I've had many different conversations that are good. Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the op- Well, I should say things, but what? The- <laughs> right? Or you know, my favorite one: go on a successful first date. Mm-hmm. Right. Tell a joke, right? The, right, right. So, uh, so, so when you start thinking about it, most real-world problems are ill-defined. Those are the problems in which you've got to do a massive amount of relevance realization because it hasn't been prepackaged for you by a well-defined problem formulation. Mm-hmm. So, if you are protected by luxury and safety and bureaucracy, if you have all these well-defined scripts mm-hmm. that, right that is going to inure you to some degree, it's going to desensitize you to what really is most of reality, which is ill-defined problems. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, uh, I think this is 
uh, the same problem that I've heard it described as complicated versus complex problems? It could be. I, I, I want to look into that a little bit more and I want to see if that's mapping up with how yeah. complexity and complexification is used like within yeah. complex system theory. Yeah. It's something uh, my, my friend Todd Hargrove has introduced to me, but I really like it. Like, um, you know, so like a math problem, building a rocket that can go to the moon is a, is a complicated problem. You engineer it correctly, yeah. it gets... It's well-defined. As long as you follow, there's a clear, as long as you don't, as long as you're not careless in the application of your method, there is a very good, you, you, there's a very clear way that is quite reliable for achieving your goal. Is that what we mean by yeah, complicated? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then a com so it's complicated because it's not easy to figure out the right solution. But once the right solution is met, there is a simple right solution. That's right. Because, That's right. You know, the, the example Todd gives is uh, um, that, uh, parenting is a complex problem. Yeah, right? yeah. Because you never have a final solution. No, right? no. Um, and and and, uh, and the ones I gave you, I think, are all instances yeah, of it too. All the same right? Yeah, very very closely related. So um, so I think that's a, you know, life is a complex problem, right? And and that's yes. a very interesting idea that that our education system is sort of feeding us um, means to solve complicated problems. Not yes. So solve complex problems because our education system came to the funk the form it did during the industrial revolution in which you know assembly line the assembly line metaphor which is the primary way in which you deal with complicated things yes. became the method you know taylor's scientific method for you know evaluating businesses and all that stuff right it's it's at the time of henry ford and the assembly line and the assembly line is this powerful model or, right and then well how do you train people would you train them in this way right um, so yeah very very much that 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 I, I, I think is um, part of the problem that we're, we're we're sort of steering people towards a form of education that may no longer be appropriate from a much more dynamic um, environment and notice notice what we're notice how this isn't just a pedagogical issue um, and you know, you know my stand on not making this political, but here's another argument for it, right? A lot of these issues are issues that require reason. What I mean by reason is our capacity to reflect on how we make meaning, where what I mean by meaning is how do we create these structures of relevance realization so we can deal with real world problems. That's what I mean by it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, 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 and what, what we wanted, what we try to do is we try to remove that skill of judgment and we try to replace it with algorithmic rules, right? So this is, you know, this is part of Weber's whole critique of the rise of bureaucracy. But we even see this, right, in the way that we keep trying to solve everything by making a law or a rule about it. And, and, and what you just, the problem is you can't, you, you just get an infinite proliferation because here's the thing about a rule, the rule, the, the, the sorry, you've got your rule. Your will, your rule may, may be well de uh, defined, but the process of applying a rule is always ill-defined. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just to to confirm for the audience, when you say Weber, you mean uh, the anthropologist or sociologist Max Weber? Yes, Max Weber. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, because uh, he he was very concerned about you know, and he tied that explicitly, by the way, to the meaning crisis. He talked about how bureaucratization, right, and creating these environments. Right was leading to the disenchantment of the world. We were losing that sort of fluid, dynamic connectivity to the world. Um, 
Perfect. So um, there's something you said that, that popped this idea into my head and I just wanted to pass it by you and see what you thought. Knowledge, it seems like you could almost say knowledge helps us solve complicated problems, mm-hmm. but to solve complex problems, we need wisdom. That is, that is kind of my thesis. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not to take any credit away from yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, part of what I, so I would say, you know, that knowledge, I mean, it, it, it's, it's you know, obviously there's a gray overlap, and, you know, but I, I, I take your point to be exactly that, right? That at least in terms of, you know, gi- giving a clarifying uh, uh, disjunction of emphasis, you know, knowledge is about, you know, marshalling evidence, whereas wisdom is about you know managing relevance and 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 yeah and so now i think that we and i've made arguments to this effect we should also have scientists who are wise uh because science also has to deal with the relevance of the knowledge not just the evidence for it but yes i think knowledge is largely the what we we generally when we have knowledge of something uh as opposed to wisdom for it yeah, I think we've we've figured out how to transform a bunch of problems into well-defined problems. I mean, the hallmark, I mean, this was Heidegger's point, the hallmark of science, if we take science to be a paradigmatic example of knowledge, is the application of math, right? And when we can, when we can formalize something, when we can apply math to it, then we have rendered it a well-defined thing. Very complicated, very difficult. Now, we have to remember that there, but there are aspects of this and this is the part of the science that I actually love. There's aspects that sort of require wisdom. So when you're trying to figure out how sort of two theories are relevant to each other, like how is relativity and quantum, how are they relative, relevant to each other? That, that then you need, you, you need people who have also developed some, some degree of a taste for wisdom, I would say. And that's why I think you see some of the great figures, even in 20th century science, like Einstein and Heisenberg and uh, you know Oppenheimer, all these guys—they're—they're they're so influenced by Spinoza and the Neoplatonists. They're so influenced by this these powerful wisdom traditions. Oppenheimer is deeply influenced by the Upanishads. He even quotes it when they when they they set off the bomb. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think that's a coincidence. But that but that is all of that all of that embellishment is actually designed to say yes. I think your fundamental insight is 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 the, the correct. Cool. And that we shouldn't be confusing knowledge and wisdom in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me like, a, you know, I was a kid who read a lot of books and yeah. was recognized at very young ages for sort of having a, you know, high intelligence. Yeah, um, I, I, I can tell you, you your, your G is very high. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, someone told me when I was like 14 years old, like, you're very wise. And um and I was like, that is just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> because, like, um, because to me, there was a distinction between wisdom because wisdom came from experience. And you could have insight or you could have uh, some set of facts in your head. So as I went through time, you know, I started to recognize that um, you, know, you could have, you, could, you can think of like a theory as like a tool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're, you, you can have really well adapted tools that allow you to to work in the environment effectively or you can have very poorly adapted tools and your your you know g iq um 
it's kind of like the speed that your brain can run at. But if you're, if your brain is running in the wrong direction, it's like ri- driving a car on the wrong way on the freeway. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Doesn't yeah. Matter how fast you can drive. It's oh, okay. going to take oh, more wealth. That goes to uh, uh, the core of my, my work. Uh, let me first play with your analogy a little bit. I would say that uh, G is measuring um, sort of uh, the optimization between the efficiency and resiliency of your processor. <laughs> nice. uh, um, and I have arguments and evidence towards that. Okay. But here's what I will say. Whatever G is, uh, if that's the right answer, mm-hmm. um, what we have is, and this is you know, the towering work of Keith Stanovich and other people. You know, Actually, can I just stop? I want yeah. to stop. I'm sorry because I we're I'm not sure that the audience will understand all the stuff that we're throwing back and forth. So I just want to say for a second, G is a is a psychometric construct that yeah. is behind the idea of IQ testing. There's yeah. a, when we test um, when you test someone's um, mathematical ability, you'll find there's a correlation with their verbal ability. And their ability to solve, you know, pattern recognition. So Spearman found this in the 20s. All of these, what look like separate kinds of problems, right, are all strongly predictive of each other. And not only that, right, so that's a strong positive manifold. Not only that, what what the evidence, if I want to know one thing about you, I want to know many things about you. But if I want to know one thing, if I had to get one measurement from you to try and predict you, I I want a measure of your G. Yeah. People don't like to hear this, but it is so pow- It is the most powerful predictor we have of human beings. There's nothing that comes anywhere near it for how well it predicts. Okay, so it's a, it's a, it's an important thing. It's still yeah. though yeah, not that predictive, right? I mean, it's what like 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4 predictive well, of. Uh, uh, well, it depends what you measure. I mean, it's it's very predictive of your academic performance. It's quite predictive of things like longevity and other things. Now. The 0.3 that I want to pick up on, though, because you're right, because there's 0.3 for some things, and this is Stanovich's work, it's only 0.3 predictive of how well you are on rationality. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and here's the thing. So we, we, you've already explained, right? We, you got the, you've got a, a, a measure of the manifold of intelligence, G. And what Stanovich has shown is you've got all these different tasks, reasoning tasks and rationality tasks and many different ones. And, they're, and you know, and psychologists have been studying them literally for decades. And, and they're, they're, very, they're quite varied. But what he found was they all form a positive manifold. They're all, positive, they're all powerfully predictive. So how you do on any one of these tasks, these reasoning tasks, these rationality tasks, is strongly predictive of how you do on all the others. So now you have two yeah. positive. And so what you can ask, and this is what he asked, right, is, well, how predictive of G, like how, let's call the, he didn't give a name, which he should have. Let's call this R for the, the rationality manifold. What's the, what's the correlation between G and R? It's 0.3, which means you can be very, very intelligent and not very rational, right? Because intelligence is largely just this first level degree of processing for this online adaptivity. And, and, and here's the thing, right? Remember I showed you how the heuristics that make you adaptive also make you subject to bias. Yes. Those adapt, that adaptive processing is, right, is the same. The thing that makes you adaptive is also the same thing that makes you susceptible to self-deception, mm-hmm. right? And so if you think of intelligence, it's just throwing all these things at the world. And when it works, it works, and that's great, right? And, and we are general problem solvers. But it's also making us very prone to self-deception. So the yeah. difference between rationality and intelligence, I would argue, is right, intelligence is about problem solving. 
Rationality is about trying to overcome the self-deception that emerges out of your attempts to solve your problems. So it's, it's a sort of meta on top of... Meta. And, then, and, then, and you have to think about rationality as, right, as be, being... Like it, it's not just one thing. Like there's a rationality of inference. Mm -hmm. There's a rationality of attention. I think you're starting to establish, and I have to give this more thought, but it goes with the whole embodied approach. There's a rationality, I think, of interaction and movement. There's yeah. perspectival rationality. There's transfer, right? And so what you, what you have to think about is, okay, so not only do you have rationality trying to correct, you know, these different ways in which we're trying to solve different domains of problems, you also have a meta thing up here, which is trying to coordinate these various rationalities so they're optimized for each other. A platonic model. That's wisdom. Yeah. That's what I would argue wisdom is. So I, I, I would just listen to the, your um, cognitive science of wisdom talk. And, and you, you talk about that, that basically um, the, that rationality is the recursive of intelligence and, and wisdom is the recursive of rationality. Totally. Uh, and, and so I think that there's um, there. Well, I have a, a small question about that because uh, I, I think we, I tend to use rationality as, uh, as, um, as in opposition to say intuition. Sure, sure. Rationality is, uh, is propositional. Rationality mm -hmm. is. So this is, the, this is the logical thesis of rationality. Yeah. Right? This, this is, the, the, this is the, the Mr. Spock thesis yeah. of rationality, yeah. And then, uh, so then, then I think of wisdom as the place in which uh, rationality and intuition and all these other subsystems are effectively integrated together. That's okay. how I thought about it. So I'm curious how that maps to what you're talking about. Are you thinking, it seems like you're using the word rationality differently. Yeah, I am. And I, and what I would, what I argue explicitly is the, the, the equating of rationality with logicality, I think is a fundamental mistake. Um, sorry. I, I don't mean to, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and I think part of the critique I have of a lot of people who present themselves in, you know, social media on YouTube as exemplars of rationality, right, just present themselves as masters of, of logic, often even simplistic logic, like syllogistic reasoning, yeah. uh, maybe predicate logic, sometimes modal, but not much beyond that. Anyways, you can't, uh, like, let's go back to the thing I said before, right, logic, let's take it, let's take it that logic works according to a, a, a normativity of validity, and validity is defined by, right, if the, tr if the premises are true, that it's impossible for the conclusion to be false, et cetera. Yeah. Anyways, the point I'm making is logic is, works in, I mean, that's why we like it. It works in terms of certainty, right? It works in terms of uh, uh, that kind of normativity. Why am I saying all this? Logic is algorithmic, yeah. right? Logic is algorithmic. And think about how well-defining logic is. That's why you have to spend, you know, when I was doing logic, the hard problem was never run, well, let, let's use your language. The complicated problem was doing the derivation. But you know what the complex problem was? Translating thought or language into the logic. Yeah. Right? What is the logic of, you know, those were, you know, like, yeah. How, so, how do you boil it down? Yeah, and notice that you weren't using the logic to actually do that translation into the logic so you could use the logic, just to point that out. And, and why is that? That's because, again, if most of your problems are combinatorial explosive and or ill-defined, right, then you can't algorithm your way through them. You can't be Mr. Spock. If I tried to logically work my way through all of the permutations to get up off my chair and to go into my kitchen, that would be the last problem. 
I would solve, yes. right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that you wouldn't solve, you mean? Yeah, you that I wouldn't solve. I don't think that I, if I identify rationality with logic and that results in cognitive suicide, then my theory has gone wrong somewhere. So I would say that the difficult. So look, what, what look what we're saying. You know, the, the two things that our culture tries to identify rationality with: intelligence, no. Yeah. Logic, no. Right. Now, let's be careful. I'm not saying logic is irrelevant to rationality, right? But the thing about, think about, uh, think about the word rationality, ratio, rationing. The issue is rationality is about knowing where, when, and to what degree I should be logical. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, that's a much more ill-defined problem, right? And that's, the pro that's where the issue of translation comes in and the issue of application and optimization. And so logic is one way in which we can deal with how our intelligence makes us leap to conclusions, right? But you don't want to shut off that leaping to conclusions because in other contexts, you know what you call that? You call that insight. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to shut that off, right? So again, how do I optimize? So there's other ways in which we're not just, we don't just fall prey to self-deception because we make bad inferences. We fall prey to self-deception because we pay attention poorly. Yeah. We, we fall prey to self-deception because we're, we are not, in, think what you, you know this, you're not inhabiting our bodies optimally. Yep. Right? And so the ra ra logic isn't going to help me with that. <laughs> I need, Right. I need I need other things that help. So what's a cognitive style that helps reduce self-deception within attention? Well, that's mindfulness. Right. And, and what's what's a cognitive style that helps me get more interactional? Well, it's the kinds of things that enhance, in, you know, implicit learning, help to optimize so we can get into the flow state. That's, again, not logic. But I would consider anything that reliably helps us across a significant domain, reduce self-deception, and optimize our ability to achieve our goals in a systematic and reliable manner as part of what it is to be rational. That is, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a very, <laughs> very profound point, I think. Um, a rationality of the body, right? Sure, why not? Yesterday uh, I was training, and, uh, and I had a sense that I wasn't, I, uh, I think I was craving to, to, to just train on my own, but I had someone who was in town and wanted to meet up with me and I had a really nice conversation with him. And then I was starting to train and I just could feel this, this lack of match, right? This yeah. lack of being able to sync and get that, that optimal grip on. Yeah, the opti yeah, yeah, with optimal gripping like we talked about. Yeah, very much. Yes. It was like the movements were just not, they were not a hundred percent there because I couldn't, I, I wasn't uh, able to bring my attention to the right things. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So notice, you know, notice how when we're talking about this interactional, right, um, rationality, notice how we're dropping into procedural knowing and perspectival knowing and participatory knowing. Right? And the propositional knowing is not doing most of the heavy lifting. No. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that, that, that's kind of, you know, to, to reroute back, that's what's been really interesting to me over the years of what, I guess I would say that, um, um, as someone who, who had a naturally analytical mind, who had a lot of ability to, to, to read things and understand them, I was very attracted to anything that I could kind of mm -hmm. parse out propositionally, 
Of course. And, and, and again, I am not denigrating this ability. No, I'm a scientist. Generating theory is one of the ways we become more rational, but it is not the only way. And, and part of the problem, Rafe, I think we both face, because I was in a similar sort of developmental trajectory, is we got a culture that largely takes anything that's not that and labels it either sort of romantically or superstitiously. Yeah. Right. And then it's just sort of, oh, well, that's it, it, it's either garbage. It's woo woo or nothing or, oh, yes. But, you know, it's part of the you know, it's emotion and it's irrational and your intuition. Trust your heart. And, and that's all crap, too. Right. I mean, <laughs> I, and, 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 and so right, right, I, I think our, our culture has done us a disservice precisely because that's why I got so passionate about this truncated model of rationality. Yeah. Right. We no. Let's open it back up, and then let's uh, and then let's and let's let's open it up until we're opening it back up, so that we have an articulated discourse about wisdom. Yes, it's per, and integrated because that's yes. I think what, what's at the at the core of what you're doing and the core of what my doing, what I'm doing, and, and a lot of these people that we're talking about is 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 the integration of these systems. One of the problems with opposing intuition and emotion to rationality. Uh, is that if you recognize there's something missing in rationality, you go into this other camp. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Instead of integrating them. So I see all these people, for instance, and this is like a, a little pet peeve of mine, but I think it's maybe, it's like they're the people who believe in Western medicine. Yes. And they will just completely reject yeah, yeah, not, yeah. You know, if you, if you talk to people in the rationality community, rationalists, right? Yeah. They're utterly dismissive of all non-Western medicine. Right. If you if you then talk to people who are into the, you know, then you meet a lot of people who are into the the non-Western medicine in there. Everything about med Western medicine is it's garbage. Is yeah. viewed as you know pervert. It's all developed through perverse incentives. It's corporations trying to control you. It's people making yeah. sick. And it's it's like there's actually truth in both camps, right? You yes. you should you should there's. There's better evidence for Western medicine, but it's not perfect and it does have perverse incentive structure. There's better evidence for certain things. Sure. I mean, it's good for infection and trauma and breakage, right? Yeah. It's not, and it's not done a very good job, right, on prevention, right? Right, and more generalized kinds of suffering and distress, yeah. right? Um, and so, and that's why we have, you know, we, we have things sort of, on the edges of you know the the the, the sort of central uh, medical models, we have things like, like you know like psychotherapy. Well, mm -hmm. what, what what's that? And and we, and we have physiotherapy. Well, like what like like ah, what the, right? And and well, this is sort of evidence based. Yes, but there's like, you, you, I, I'm not going to go into it. But you yeah. see, that I'm making right. It's not a clean like <laughs> thing like this. And, and when you you pay attention, you pay attention to well. Do like when people are doing some of the is some of it destructive? No doubt, uh, but we've got we can't ignore the fact that Western medicine has been very destructive in some ways, right? Too. Um, so, if we say you're right, the evidence for infection and trauma and breakage, Western medicine, we really have to pay attention to that. But maybe there's this other issues of health in a much more broader sense about you know both prevention and flourishing and maybe there's stuff we have to look at it critically but maybe there's stuff in, like in these alternative approaches i for one you know i've drawn a lot from the way mindfulness 
right, drawn from Eastern practices, has had a huge impact on my health. And now this is becoming something that people are studying more scientifically, and that's as it should be. Yeah. Well, this uh, it, it pops into my mind that this this actually connects back to like well-defined versus ill-defined problems. Yes. Yes. And, yes. and there's a really interesting there's a really interesting way to look at this, which is like if you have a broken bone, um, that's actually a well-defined problem, mm. and you know it, it may be very complicated for a surgeon to put it back together, but if they understand well how to do it. It, it's very clear the procedure that takes you to success. However, take that person who has a broken bone and say, how do I recover the function yes. once that bone is put back into place? And you now are actually in the realm of independent, of, of, of an ill-defined problem. Yes. If you're trying to get that person to recover from pain, they may, they may suffer chronic pain for prolonged periods of time after all of the structural problems have been resolved. Exactly. That, yes, is, that is an ill-defined problem and so yes this is a and, and that's where you know uh like in my world in the world of of teaching people movement you have people who talk about being evidence-based and everything has to be based on like you know rcts or, or you know randomized controlled trials but you can't you can't solve these problems with only those tools um and some of the stuff i mean so let me let me uh, let me let me uh expand on that because uh, I was thinking, you know, the person with the, not the broken toe, but a person with the broken psyche. So, so we take a look and we, well, we should only use evidence-based therapies, psychotherapies. Well, we should. And so, for example, we should, you know, and so that's why we, we use more CBT than, you know, psychodynamics. But if you take a look at this, the effectiveness of these therapies is going down with time. Yeah. Right? Why? The, the technique hasn't changed because we thought this was... Pause you for so one second, sorry by cbt oh cognitive behavioral therapy cognitive sorry therapy. yeah which, sorry for that yeah i yeah, know it's fine um which would be fun to talk about a little bit more but go, but go ahead and continue what you're saying so you know it's going to because what what what's what's the meta evidence show the meta evidence shows that above and beyond all of these different therapies right what is most predictive of how well uh, therapy is going to go is the rapport between the therapist and the patient and you know what generating rapport is a very ill-defined problems, right? Now, again, does that mean, I don't want people saying, oh, well, Verveke said you can just go to whatever wonky therapy you want. That's not what Verveke is saying. What Verveke is saying is, right, you have to pay attention to, as you're pointing out, you know, the parts that are well-defined and can be sort of evidence-based and the parts that are ill-defined and we have to rely on much more long-term reflective uh, means of evaluation. Yeah where we have to cultivate wisdom. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I say when, you know, like what makes a good coach, right? That's yeah, yeah. At the heart of what that's I'm awesome. interested in. Oh, that's a great analogy. Keep going. And so from when I, I thought about this years ago and, uh, and I was like, well, the first thing that makes a great coach is actually caring deeply about helping the person in front of them solve their problem. You mm. have to, and that the second thing, that matters deeply is having the knowledge to help them. And the third thing is having the charisma that yeah. allows you to create the connection and the co and convince and persuade them yeah, to, exactly. to execute and well to be present and to be, to attend to the lecture. So um, yeah, very often the thing that makes somebody an extraordinary um, uh, personal trainer or coach is much less to do with their awareness of the optimization of, 
sets and rep schemas, right. more to do with their ability to get in deep rapport with the yeah. student or the, or the athlete. But that is extremely well said. Very well said. I would, I think that's also, I mean, I run up against this with trying to articulate what makes somebody a good teacher. And it's, it's again, it's the same thing. There's this, there's this irremovable um, aspect of charisma, which can be abused. And so yes, we should, we, that has to be reflected on rationally, critically, uh, but there is charisma and the ability to create rapport. And it's a, it's a big, big factor. And the attempt to try and replace it with well-defined methods of technique, right? It, I predict, I mean, there's, I mean, there's been recent research showing this. We've had all these educational interventions and all these techniques, and now the meta-analysis is showing us 40% of them are completely ineffective and might be deleterious. Yep. Right? And, and it's like, yeah, because, you know, you, you can't replace, like, you can't replace, the, you know, this, the, the wise use of charisma with just the, you know, the methodological application of technique. It's just not the same. You have to have, well, you have to have feel. And I mean, this is, this is at the center of all the, you know, I feel like all these problems because uh, as a martial artist, right, you could train techniques, 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 techniques every day, all day. And you can have a bigger set of techniques than anybody else. But it's the feel for how to create solutions in vivo with another person that allows you to have success. And that's, that's fundamentally the same thing in some sense as being a teacher, as being a coach, because it is only through the, the alive experience of doing the thing in some sense that you get the full set of information that. Well, because, because I think it brings in the other knowings. It brings in the procedural, the perspectival and the participatory, which are not captured by our propositional methods. Right. Hmm. I mean, I, I, something happened to me the other night that it is, is so, uh, Convergent with what you're saying. So, uh, I, um, my partner and I, uh, we were listening to some music, and I, I sort of, I, I knew she liked the Moonlight Sonata, and I, I sort of, I was playing. I just, she was just sort of relaxing, and I, I, I played it on my phone, and then she stopped me. and said, "Stop! Go and look up this, and look up the Moonlight Sonata by this person." Now she is a trained musician. I'm not. And so I go and get this other one and I play it and she says, listen, listen how he's, look, and she's saying things like, notice how he's robbing a little bit of timing from this note and giving it to that note and notice how it's deep and, and she unfolds this appreciation for me and I go, oh my gosh, this is so much better, right? And yet, right? And the other, there was, and, and she said the other, the other was mechanical, right? It's, it's perfect technique, but it's missing all of this, right? It's missing all of this other stuff. And, it, and that's exactly it, right? And it's interesting for me as a martial artist, because you probably know this, uh, the verb, I, I do Tai Chi Chuan, right? And the verb, you don't do Tai Chi, the Chinese verb is you play it, like when you play music, right? You're a Tai Chi player. And it's the same sort of thing. It's the same sort of thing. Yeah. And you have to, you, you have to play. Um, yes. Yes. Curious play. Anything. Um, the um, yeah. My my friend Todd Hargrove just came out with a book called Playing with Movement. It's all about like to solve. A lot of times, the thing that helps you solve complex problems is actually play. Yes. Yeah. I just argued this in one of the videos. Yes. And this yeah. is this is this is and it this kind of goes to your um, your your setting up of these sort of evolutionary. Uh, opposing engines that create up. Yeah. 
Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because play is repetition with variation, right? Yes, very much. Like we talked about with Siegler, the way kids play, right? And, and the way I was trying to argue when I was talking about Gnosis, that, you know, serious play is the way we go through these very difficult transformative experiences because we can't really infer our way through them. And, 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 and so we, we, we get through them with serious, and therapy is a kind of serious play. Martial arts, when done properly, are serious play. That's what we're saying. I think another disservice our culture has given us is we've lost the category serious play. Play has been, play has been assimilated to leisure and to fun. Mm-hmm. Where, right, where, and, 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 and some play is entertaining. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we dispense with that. We need entertainment too. But we, we shouldn't reduce all play to entertaining play. Some play is the serious play that engages fundamental transformative processes for us. Yes. And, uh, and, and that is essentially um, brings me to the kind of the, 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 there's three themes I wanted to go over. One was like establishing the meaning crisis. The second was uh, really getting a, a, a fundamental view on, on relevance, which I think we, we can dig into more deeply, but um, we'll, we'll have to do that another time. The next one is what is this, this ecology of practices, right? So yeah. I have recognized within parkour that it is um, and the, uh, these other practices that have come to build evolve move play that they, that they're a way to engage in a serious practice of right. self-transformation. Yes, are, yeah. uh, I, I totally agree. Keep going. To go, to go back to the beginning, because I, um, I, I started to say this, and then we kind of got sidetracked, but we have this problem, which is we, we need to engage in something that feeds us relevant information with which we can form ourselves. Yes. And we have the wonderful benefit of living in a society where a lot of the potentially relevant information that uh, would be very serious, we're actually buffered from. Yes. Serious play, serious play needs, serious play needs ill-defined problems. Yeah. And so, so what I think, you know, and I had this realization, um, you know, in, in the, the, the Jordan Peterson model is this idea that the heroic archetype, we need to be embodying the heroic archetype. The heroic archetype is the person who, goes out and confronts the dragon of chaos, right? And brings order out of it. You're, you're going out and, you know, that's the same thing as going out and, and finding a stressor that makes you stronger. That's, that's basically flow state. That's uh, yep. Taleb's anti-fragility development. Like it's all kind of wrapping around the same point. Parkour obviously is a process where you're doing that as is rock climbing and surfing and all these other things. You're, you're going to find some novel, challenge that you're going to test yourself against and then you're going to play with it by adding variations by moving things around by exploring it in new ways um but what occurred to me all of a sudden is in in maps of meaning he also talks about the, the inverse which is that not only does the hero go into chaos to to produce order that is good the hero brings chaos back yes dis- disruptive strategies Yes, to the, um, the, the parched kingdom that has become so staid and so mechanical that there's nothing life-giving in it anymore. Yeah. Um, so there's a beautiful story of the tailor who sews the sky back together so that it can rain again because all the water's leaking out in one place and the kingdom is parched. And the idea is that, and, and I realized that that's, that's what the, these parkour kids had done, right? Because 
yes, they went out to find a challenge, but not only that, they reconceptualized how challenge, how chaos could yeah. happen in an environment that had been ordered for them. Oh, that's beautiful. Right? That's beautiful. So you've got this well-delineated environment, and then they figure out how to turn it back into yeah. a set of ill-defined problems in which they can engage in serious play. Oh, that's very, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah, so that's the kind of a, the center of the essay that I'm writing. So, so the, the way to walk from here to the, uh, to the, to the, um, the grocery store is defined. Right. Yeah, well-defined. Yeah, very well-defined. And so there's no challenge in it. There's no growth in it. Yeah. Yeah. So now nature sort of invites us to play in a way that I think that... that because nature's, nature's physicist, right? It means yeah. self-generating. Self nature's always turning over, right? And, and, and but yeah, keep going. The yeah. city doesn't have as much of that inherent thing. It's, it's like we can't see it the same way. But they reconceptualized the city. They also trained in nature, but they reconceptualized the city and saw all of these places where there was order that actually could, that chaos could be harvested out of. That's that, really that novel information could be harvested out. Of. So this is all going in the essay you're writing. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to work on right now. That's a, I think that's a really good insight. I, I think that's really good. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so I think that this, you, you see this and it's like, okay, well that it's a practice that has a particular relevance to the now. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Yeah. In this world that we exist in that, that has become so ordered in certain ways. Um, we, we need something that allows us to do that, to reimagine play and to bring play into our life and to engage with it in a serious way. And so this is one of my arguments for why this is a, a particular form of self development practice that has a lot of value to give us yeah i, I think so. i think that's good i i think i i want to i if i can add something to that i mean you've it, it this this way this insightful generativity of serious play is an alternative to the the uh the politicization of the introduction of disruptive strategy because the narrative of disruptive strategy in the political arena is revolution Mm -hmm. Right. And we and we keep using the word revolution. We even use it for things that weren't political, like the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution. Right. And, and, and I think part of what you're doing, first of all, I'm not trying to take away from the fact that this is making a huge impact on people's lives. But what I'm saying is it's all it's giving us a if you'll allow I hope you don't find this too sterile. It's giving us a reconceptualization of how you introduce disruption that's alternative to the grammar of revolution. Yeah. Well, so that's I think that's very important. Yeah. I think that's very important because like, right, because if that wasn't available to people like those kids, if the only narrative available to them is, you know, revolution and, you know, then, right, then they might be going down a very different path right now. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the last time we had this conversation, I framed it around the narrative of Fight Club. Oh, exactly. Right. Yes. Fight yes. Becomes the, the this revolutionary project. Yeah. And when I when I went back and watched Fight Club after five years of doing parkour, what I said, ah, here's this impulse. It's the same impulse, and it's being answered, but we've created a positive some answer to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Boy, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, you're familiar with Brett Weinstein. Yes, yes. Not, not, not that much. I've seen yeah. 
maybe two or three things. I, I wouldn't yeah. claim yeah. any expertise sure. around it. Um, well, you know, he and his brother Eric have this idea of game B and right. So rather than so one way to look at a revolution is to say the system that we have is broken. We need to tear it down. We need to destroy it in order to give birth to a new system. But this uh, has tended to, well, it has upfront massive moral costs. Yeah, um, and, and it's generally failed. And I mean, the, Fran failed. The, the French Revolution, et cetera, right? Yes. Um, and so we were saying that, you know, during the Occupy Wall Street movement, he and, and his brother and a, a group of other people developed this idea of a game B, which was rather than try to conceptualize a way to to fight the system within the system, what you would try to do is to um, develop a game that can play in parallel to the system mm -hmm. and become more valuable so that players will slowly default to the new game. This is how Christianity takes the, over the Roman Empire. Exactly, there we go. <laughs> and, and one of the analogies he used was parkour. Right. Parkour is a game B to fitness mm -hmm. right um and so i've wanted to have this conversation with him as well because i think this is a really profound take and it's like how do we use these sort of yeah analogies of something like parkour to to build a, a broader set of game b's so you know the uh, you know there's a lot of criticism of the academy right now mm -hmm. you know the cost of tuition is skyrocketing you have all this political polarization you have you know uh, mm -hmm. yep. huge huge um political sort of Everything's moved to one side. You have the whole uh, um, deplatforming of speakers, microaggressions, all that stuff. Um, what's the game B, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I, I, I mean, I think, I mean, um, I, I think Jordan Greenhall's also doing a lot of work about trying to get. He's he works. I mean, I'm going to be having a discussion with him at some point. Uh, well, first an informal discussion, then. I think we both want to have sort of a public discussion at some point. And he also, um, I really, he's really, I mean, I, I need to get into his work more. I, I've watched quite a bit, but I, I need to watch quite a bit more. Uh, but I see him as really, really wrestling with trying to break out of the grammar that we've fallen into and do, like you say, get the, get sort of more like the game B kind of thing going. Um, and I, I'm, I'm more, I mean, it, I'm seeing, like I said to you, uh, at the beginning, I've seen more and more groups of people that are doing this. Like there's there's what you're doing with movement, and there's what people are doing with discourse in the authentic discourse movement, right? And 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 there's all these things where people are trying to do the game B, um, yeah. if you'll allow me to extend that metaphor. Yeah. And, and I I see that, like I see that I see those as the positive, the reflective responses to the meaning crisis, as opposed to what you might call the reactive. Um, responses to the meaning crisis. And so that again is another piece of evidence I would offer uh, for the meaning crisis of why are all these things emerging now? And, and, and why are, and, 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 you know, and, and, and they're emerging and, and they're not just emerging in sort of silo, they're emerging and they're trying to connect to each other and talk to each other. Because I think what we're trying to do, I think what game B ultimately is, because, and that's why I use the metaphor of Christianity and the Roman Empire, you don't try and deal with the political military structure, you try and reculture you try to reculture your civilization, and that's what's basically ha needs to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, to to give some evidence for what you're you're saying here. Um, well, why are why am I as a movement teacher talking to you, and why yeah. is one of the most popular videos on my channel? 
well, that's great. I'm glad it is. <laughs> like, you know, like of the of the podcasts that I've recorded um, in the last, you know, I've recorded like t- ten or fifteen podcasts recently, and yours is by far the most popular. So, you know, there's a there is a there's a hunger for this, and yeah. people who are who are seeking these alternative movement communities, they're they're seeking them for something that is more than recreation. Oh, very much. They're seeking them to <coughs> cultivate something that is congruent with what you're offering. And, and there is this potential for this great synergy, which is, um, which is, I guess, you know, the theme that we're, I'm trying to bring us back to within this part of the conversation is we have this opportunity now to have yes. this amazing set of practices. All these practices are available to us. So, you know, uh, you've talked about meditative practices, contemplative practices. Uh, uh, well, actually, I don't know if I've shared this with you, but I, I was talking to my friend Mark about this. I mean, maybe I did in a private conversation. But I talk, so we have, yeah, I, we did talk about this. Um, meditative, looking in, contemplative, how do we look out? Embodiment, how do we experience the body? Environmental, how do we engage with the environment? Interact, how do we engage with other agents? Discourse practices too. Like how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we restructure how we're using language? Yes, very much. So now if you, if you were to devote enough time to really develop skill in all of these, um, well, that's your whole life right there, right? <laughs> like, um, yeah, it's a good life. <laughs> if you didn't have to have a job. Yeah. But, um, but so, the, so then the question is how, how do we, so if we, if we look at this as a, like a character development mm-hmm. program, um, we have so, to, we have to, we, again, we're back to the, the problem of relevance because we have to decide what is the most relevant for a given person at a given time, knowing we can't invest in everything. So, um, so if I, you know, how do I set up my ecology of practices and how do I manage it? Right. What are the, what are those pieces that, that come together? And so I'm, I think I'd like to just give that to you as an open question right now is when you're conceptualizing the ecology of practices, what is it that you're, you're thinking and how do you, how do you help someone get the benefit across all these things in, 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 in a focused way? Right. So, uh, so the ecology of practices is, yeah, it's an important question. Um, it's interacting with the meaning crisis, um, uh, you, you know, we've talked many points in the talk. We've talked about sort of there's always bottom up and top down, right? And so we've got, uh, and this is a sort of an argument that Chris and I are developing right now. We have, uh, we have a lot of these bottom up, bottom up movements that you're talking about, <coughs> but we don't have the overarching top down. Um, and, 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 and we're in a problematic situation uh, because of that, because the, the, you know, we tried doing that with political ideologies and for all the reasons we've articulated about the inadequacies of that, that's not going to be where we're finding that. The thing that used to do that, that used to create ecologies of practices for comprehensively transforming consciousness, cognition, character, communitas, right? Um, that was religion. And for many people, religion is no longer, I mean, this, I, I mean no disparagement on religious people. This is just a fact. The, the religion is like the, the, the number of people who are not religious is increasing and it's increasing at an increasing rate and things like that. Right. And so for many people, that's not an option. So one thing to do is to try and like look back and see using something like the relevance realization model. Can you create like, you know, 
a virtual engine in which you have worked out sort of selective criteria and you've also worked out generative criteria. And, and a way of doing that is think about the sort of areas in which, you know, self-deception might uh, most likely arise. Maybe think of like maybe these four kinds of knowing. Propositional knowing. Well, what, what practice can I adopt? Like maybe something like Stanovich's Octave Open-Mindedness to deal with that. Or maybe maybe authentic discourse is how I'm going to try and deal with that more linguistic cross. What do I, what's, what's a good thing for procedural stuff? You know, I think the kind of stuff you're talking about is clear, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not limiting it to that. It does other stuff. But saying, right? Perspectival stuff. Well, obviously, you know, the meditative stuff and the content, that's really, you know, what about the participatory stuff? Well, I need to bring in situations where people, as you said, have to confront, challenge, and go through transformational processes in which their identity and the identities of the world are are reconfigured in a coordinated fashion. So you want to you want to you want to look across the domains, and then you also want to look for checks and balances, right? So you might want to get a you know you know okay, what's the strength of this? So let me give you one example of a check and balance that Leo and I talked about in the wisdom paper. Right? So um, one thing you want to do sometimes is you want to protect your inferential processing from all that machinery that likes to leap to conclusions and find interesting patterns, right, right? Because that's what, that's what often messes you up when you're reasoning, right? You don't want to leap to a conclusion. So you create this practice act of open-mindedness and you look for biases and you keep it, right? And what it's doing is it's basically protecting, right, the propositional processing from, you know, the perspectival procedural insight machinery. But when people go into therapy, they have to do exactly the opposite. They have to learn to shut off, right, all of this propositional stuff because it's what's running. Yeah. And because they're locked up here, they know what they should do, but they're not doing what they need to do. And they can't, they have to, and that what they need is they need something that protects the, you know, the transformative processes, the insight processes from all that, right? And then mindfulness does that. So one of the things you might want to think is, hey, wait, I want to cultivate active open-mindedness to improve my insight and protect it from leaping inappropriately. But I also want to cultivate mindfulness practices to prevent my insight machinery from being deregulated by all this rumination and being trapped in endless propositional processing. And then what I'll do is I'll, I, I won't put them into adversarial processing. I'll put them into opponent processing, like in the relevance model, so that they're constantly acting like checks and balances on each other. Right. And so I think it's possible because I think that's what I see. I mean, again, religions obviously claim they're doing many other things. But one of the things I think religions do is they, they set up. So you, you see something like, you know, Christianity, it has it, it'll set up a, a wisdom institution, the monastery, but it'll set up the, a, a knowledge institution, the university. And then they have this dynamic sort of opponent relationship. They, they both belong to the church and they're, they're both part of the same family, but they're sort of pushing and pulling on each other all the time, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think one way to do is to look for domains, look for practices that will help address the you know, processes of self-deception in each domain, and then try to set up, right, like I said, an ecology where you have checks and balances, sets of complementary strengths and weaknesses between them. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's, there's so many things I want to talk about in there uh, because, you know, we're, we're wrapping back to a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we've, we've addressed. And I feel like we're, you know, we can make it more clear. Like one of the things you talked about is the oppositional processing. And I want to get deeper into that. Um, 
but I, I, there was something that popped in my head while while you're doing that, that that struck me as an idea also within here, which is, so the first realization I think is important in the psychology of practices is recognizing that the practice exists to change you, not mm -hmm. for you to serve the practice. Yes, very much. So that's, uh, the, uh, you don't want to, you, you always want to be, Chris and I, we have in this language um, of, of religio, which was possibly one of the etymological origins of religion. It means this connectedness, bindedness. Mm -hmm. And then you have credo, which is, I believe, it's where we get creeds yeah. from. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the point of creeds, I would argue, they should always have been in service of the religio. The job of the creed is to, is to sort of get you you know, paradigmatic clarity about what counts as a good practice, what doesn't, and things like that. But it was also we were always supposed to be sort of centered on that. But I think we've we've gotten skewed. It's all part of that that whole series of processes we've talked about. You know, with Weber and stuff like that. We've been skewed towards the creedal and the propositional and the assertion, yeah. right? And, and we've lost, right? And so we we yes, exactly. The practice should be serving your transformation. One of my criticisms of the martial artist, and I, I'm a martial artist, so it's from within, right, is we confuse a lot of the feudal structure of the martial arts that was cultural with the practice. And, you know, you're supposed to be serving. That's been, that's problematic in, 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 in a lot of important ways. And we know that it's been a source of a lot of particular instances of abuse, right? And so, again, I think you're exactly right you know, the practice should be, right, should be serving you in some fundamental way. Yes. Now, no. That doesn't mean you're a dilettante and you just, whatever feels good. We're not saying that. We're yeah. talking about, you know, you have to make a, a, you have to make a real pedagogical commitment, but. Yeah. So, um, um, man, it, keep tripping wires. I really want to go into <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to, to finish this point because I, I think that there was an interesting idea that, that, that I wanted to develop here. So, so give me a, a second to lay this out. So the first thing is recognize that you, that the practice exists to serve you and change you in some way that's, that's valid and important to you. So I think a lot of times people don't go into the practices with that and they end up feeling like, you know, their identity is to be a good parkour athlete. Their identity is to be a yeah. uh, Aikido. Yeah. And then they're not thinking about what they're actually getting out of it. Um, and so I think the first thing is like, you know, it would be very beneficial to have a, an overarching idea of the, 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 the sage, the, the thing that we're going after through all these practices. And then yes, say, I think so. this is one means of helping myself achieve this. It's one means of yes. helping achieve this. So now you have your entry point, right? And it, it doesn't, so if, if, if we were to lay out all those practices and it's overwhelming to people, I think that what you, can, what you could do is pick one, whatever is really attractive to you, go into mm -hmm. it. And now, be, now, you can, now you can recursively look at it and say, where is it delivering for me? Where is it failing right. to deliver for me? Yep. And now you can yep. look out into those skept, uh, sets of practices that are available to you. You yes. have a schema to look at them, and then you adopt something else, and you go yeah. widen your practice, and then you see, does this, does this donate something to me that I'm not able to, to take from my primary practice? And then if it's yep. very important, and then you continue to do this. And this, um, this kind of, I think, maps a little bit to the cognitive scope idea that you talk about in the relevance. Yes, yes, yes. We are trying to, yep, yep, yep. We are trying to 
I do some, I, I, I do, I mean, I do an ecology practices. I'm even interested in bringing that into like the ecology of the worldviews in which, yeah. like, so what is it like, like, what's it like to sort of try and make a Neoplatonic worldview viable? What's yeah. it like to try and make a Taoist, right? What's it like to try and make a Buddhist? And, and, and this is not to be a dilettante. It's really, really practice deeply, uh, you know, and really uh, go through the, at least the phenomenological and, um, uh, and identity transformations associated with them. And then I, I and then and, and try and get a sense of again the 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 like you said you have to get I, I was going to say a, you have to get good practice with the practice but that would be stupid but you have to you you you, you, you yeah you you need you need some you have to have knowledge from the inside of a course of development so that gives you a touchstone by which you can start evaluating others now what I would say is I think what you're saying is the way individuals should pursue it so yes but i think we should also have um uh, for lack of a better word we should have theoretical structures that also do the top-down things that analyze these various things and try and work out various uh you know various ecological configurations that would work yeah. and so that we have the top-down and the bottom-up strategies talking to each other in a kind of ongoing reflective equilibrium i think that would be optimal yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm focused a little bit here on a pragmatic. Like, okay, we, we've talked. Sure, about sure, totally. Where where does the the audience take it, right? Yeah, um, no, totally, totally. And, and w what I would hope is the audience would be doing what you're suggesting. And what I would hope is that, um, insofar as I'm a, a scientist and uh, some sort of psychotech engineer. I don't know if that's the right one. Wow, that's a weird title. Uh, anyways, um, that I could provide, I could be providing, right, the top-down, right, structuring that would interact, not impose, not a creed, but give, like, you know, give people, you know, ways of gaining access to bridging between synoptically integrating, et cetera, when they're trying to build, when they're trying to grow. I like the, that image you had. It's almost like this tree of practices that sort of grows out from a root, right? But the tree not only grows up from the ground, it should also be nourished, right, Precisely. from the light. So, um, so in the cognitive scope, you talk about the idea that, that uh, if, I can, if I remember correctly, so cognitive scope is the idea that we're becoming a, uh, we have to balance between sort of optimizing as a general problem yep. solving. And, and oh, so there's two things you want. There's two ways of becoming adaptive. You can even see evolution will shift creatures' emphasis in their ecological niche. You can think about revel, uh, relevance realization as creating cognitive niches as okay. opposed to uh, biological niches. And, but what are the two strategies? Well, you can become, you become like us, you can become generalists. And so what you do is you get sort of machinery that you can transfer across contexts, right? Uh, right, and that's one way of being adopted. The other is no, no, no. What I'm going to do is here's a niche, and I'm going to specialize and get really. I'm going to get really contextually sensitive, right? And and that's going to, right? And the thing is, right? If if you maximize either one of those, you get into difficulty at the cognitive level, right? Because sometimes what's the same across contexts is what's relevant. Sometimes what's different in this context is what's relevant. And so what you want is you want to optimize between them. And what cognitive scope is doing is trying to always optimize between those two. Yeah. And then um, uh, drawing a blank right now on what cognitive tempering was. Cognitive, cognitive tempering is basically you're trying to balance exploiting and exploring off against each other. So exploit is I stay here, 
right? And I try to get as much as I can. The problem is the longer I stay here, the more opportunity cost I'm building because there might be better stuff over there. So it's here now versus there then. But if I'm always exploring, of course, I'm never actually garnering any of the resources. Cool. So again, I, I need to optimize between those yeah. two. So those are, those are, I think those are awesome lenses to look at um, practices and how you engage in yeah. practices. Yeah, I think so. So I, I came up with this idea years ago about how, how should someone who's oriented towards movement in a general sense act? They should, they should look to sort of um, phase between widening their practices and yep. the practices. Yep, yep, zero in, zero out, zero in, zero out. Zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. So, yep. so for instance, um, you know, uh, right now, I'm really deep on specific things within parkour and I'm, and I'm focused on, yeah. on specific things within uh, judo and jiu-jitsu. Um, now, if I go and do some Taiji Shuan, that will be widening my practice. Yep, yep. And, and maybe it'll become such a, a, a compelling thing that that becomes a core pillar of my practice or maybe it's something that donates something useful yeah, and and, and 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 is let go. I did a lot of I did some contact improv for a while and some uh, for some temporary dance, and that hasn't been compelling enough for me to stay with it. But it's very useful for me to have seen. Right, and your brain will do compression on this. It'll take all these things and it'll also compress and find what's invariant. Exactly. And then, and then that will also, it's strange because like in deep learning, eventually what you do is you start to pick variations that are sort of derivable from what's invariant. Right, rather than just random variations, yeah. and you sort of get this cycle going. And this is why generalists, you know, like uh, right now, there's this whole thing. Uh, well, David Epstein is writing a book called Range, which is about this in general, uh, looking at athletes, but even looking beyond that, which is this ability to do that. So, uh, Franz Boschen's book talks about this idea: if you learn one movement task, um, you will set up a, a range of invariants that you're paying attention to that allow you to control. Yeah. That's right. Uh, or, you know, control factors. You can think of those control factors, right? So maybe there's 10 control factors in shooting a basketball. And then you go over and you uh, throw a, a baseball pitch, right? And yeah. you have 10 control factors in throwing a baseball pitch. And then you go throw a javelin and then you go throw a punch. And, um, and it turns out that there are some that will be common to all of them. Right. The athlete right. who's better able to concentrate their energy and attention on the physical parameters, the control factors that are true in many different multi-opt, yeah, yeah, becomes more adaptable, and this is why early specialization fails for athletes because yes. actually, uh, football in the NFL is sufficiently different from football at the collegiate level that having that broader set of uh, that more refined set of movement and variables allows you to adapt to that next level more effectively. Yep. Yeah, no, this, this, yeah, this is also constant. That's very well put. And, and of course, you could, you, could, you could go too far the other way. You could become the dilettante, the dabbler, who's always exploring and never gets any deep exploitation from any one discipline. Yes, very, very well put. So I've noticed, um, I talk about two traps within movement practice, the trap of the specialist and the trap of the generalist. Oh, wow, that's so, that's so apropos. Yeah, so the trap of the specialist um, is... You, you go through the novice process and that's hard and it, it's scary and you now have an ego and you have an identity right bound up with that yeah and that in order to go learn something else you have to uh you have to revert to the novice process yeah yeah and that can be very threatening for people the trap of the generalist is 
a lot of, and it's often guys who are not talented are the fall into the specialist trap and guys who are kind of physically talented fall into the generalist trap because right. the novice phase comes easy for you. Those quick gains are really highly rewarding. Mm-hmm. And once you reach a plateau where you're no longer able to progress quickly through something, you it's move on. easy to go to the next thing. Right. So I, right. So I meet guys who are like, Aikido is my life, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, they'll, they'll absolutely dismiss and talk shit about every other practice because they're threatened by the fact that in order to do it, they would have to accept that they're not good at something again. Right, right, right. And then I meet guys who, who are very, they're good snowboarders, good surfers, good skiers, good, you know, at parkour and gymnastics and volleyball. Um, but they don't seem to have learned any of the deep lessons that can come from the movement practice because whenever right. it got hard, they could easily go find something new. Right, right. Well, and that, that's interesting, Rafe, just to, uh, to, to loop back, not to distract us. No, no, no. Uh, but that's an, that's an indication of how high G can be self-deceptive because yeah. these people are precisely good, I, I would predict, because that is a predictor of, of that, because they have IG so they can move on. But, right, they keep going because they, they, they're, in a, uh, they're, they're not in a growth mindset, right? They yeah. get into the self-deception of always being sort of superficial in, in their learning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that I've fallen into that trap as a, as a learner myself, and not in physical practices, but more in, uh, in the types of material that I would consume. Because when I went to university and college, uh, if I went, stayed in the social sciences and anthropologies, I'd barely had to read the books. Like, yeah. you know, I, I listened to lecture, it sticks in my head, like, you know, I just stick. Yeah. Yeah. And then I can easily reason through and, and, and go through. And it's like, I go over to... Yeah. Uh, to chemistry and I have to work hard and I have no I have no preparation for that. I don't know what it's like to work hard. It's not comfortable or easy for me. Yep. yep. And so more recently, like um, I've dug into some work where I like really had to just sit down to it. And then I was like, oh, this actually happens. Like <laughs> hard if you put your if you if you really try to articulate and understand something, it will eventually come. Yeah. I I, I mean I, I'm I, I, I'm lucky um, because I, I mean I'm 60% a cognitive psychologist, so that's where I'm sort of specializing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also 40% a cognitive scientist, which means I'm also having to integrate between psychology and you know machine learning and neuroscience and philosophy and linguistics and anthropology. And so I I mean it keeps me exposed. Um, and, and I've also introduced into my own work, you know, seriously considering the historical dimensions of whatever I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm lucky that I get paid <laughs> uh, basically to do the kind of thing you're talking about, you know, push myself into areas that I, you know, that um, aren't my home discipline, so, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You get to be paid to be the the, uh, the cognitive generalist or the well I, yeah or, or or at least I, i'm the guy that um sort of yeah d- tries to do uh, the bridging the synoptic integrating which is you know i think it's 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 has been something that seems like has gone away to a degree uh you know that that the, the idea of, of of someone who researches philosophy of ancient Greece and Buddhist practice and cognitive science and psychology um, as, as our, as our pool of potential knowledge has, has gotten so much, so many more degrees of freedom, so much more complexity. 
the idea of trying to navigate through a large section that has seemed to be um, increasingly less uh, people, it seems like less people are oriented towards it. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, even though we're getting more and more feedback uh, that that is needed, uh, that integration is needed. And I don't, and I don't mean from, you know, from academics with those rose-colored glasses. I'm talking about people in the business world and the tech world saying, no, no, we need people who can bridge between disciplines and in a constructive way, right? Yes, we, st we will always need specialists, but we need, we need integrators and generalists. Um, and, 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 um, it, they're, they're very high in demand. Uh, and so it's, but the problem, the, problem the, is, <laughs> again, we've circled back to the issues. I mean, what, what, when you specialize, you tend to, and I, and I don't want to disparage any of my colleagues because I hold them in tremendously high regard, but when you're specializing, right, you, you tend to have a lot, you, you, you tend to have more well-defined problems. And when you're trying to bridge across, you know, different vocabularies, different methods, different ways of collecting data, different theoretical constructs, different paradigms of what counts as good or bad practice, like that's much more of an ill-defined problem. That's a much more ill-defined problem. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've been talking for almost two hours now. So uh, we should probably finish up soon for today. Okay. That's good because I got to go soon anyways. Okay. Is there any the last thing you'd like to say to the audience about the idea of, of what is the, the practicum of, uh, of building your ecology of practices? And then maybe um, how do we go forward with uh, creating the kind of top-down knowledge that can give people guidance for that? So I've tried to exemplify a method in the series, not because I think it's the only method, but it's a method I've worked a lot on uh, and other people seem to be finding it valuable. Um, and I'm getting a lot of feedback about that. Um, so one is, I mean, so let's, let's, I mean, like grow the tree and grow it, you know, bottom up the way you're talking about. I think that's very important. I, I would say you should look for, again, domains of practice. You should have a movement practice and if, and it, you know, and, I am aware that I'm, I'm, I'm doing you a disservice because what you're offering is people is not just a movement practice. The way you've described it to me, there's a movement practice and there's also ritual practices that are bound up with it. And you, you want to have movement practices, you want to have ritual practices, you want to have discord practices, you want to have reasoning practices, you want to have attention practices. But try and get like, you know, like I said, you know, if you can get a place where they're at least starting to touch on some of those in a coordinated manner, that's a good place to begin. And then keep thinking about how to expand out but then also step back and look into the history, right? You're doing that now, even with the parkour, right? But look at like, that's what I'm trying to do with this, the series. Like look in the, like if you, if don't just turn your back on it, right? Let's try and salvage what we can, so, you know, sets of psychotechnologies, ecologies of psychotechnologies and, and an understanding how they worked and why they failed. You know, let's educate ourselves from our history in powerful ways. Um, and so one of the things I'm doing like on, on Twitter is I'm, you know, in addition to the, in, in addition to the video series, I'm trying to do book recommendations, right? Uh, of just things to read, uh, to try and get some of that history and get people sort of, um, you know, a way to tutor themselves or at least hopefully with others. But one of the things that I would really recommend, and people are doing this spontaneously, is don't do this autodidactically. 
right? I, I get into groups, like either join a group like what you're offering or form, if you want, you, you do that. And maybe in addition to that, get a reading group where you read through some of these texts together and talk about them and discuss them. Not for any other purpose than just to try and figure out what can I take from that and learn from that that's transferable as sets of psychotechnologies and practices that I can fit into like my growing reflective understanding of both the strengths and the weaknesses of the course of development that I'm on. Beautiful. Yeah. In my, I had a, one of the last conversations I had was with my friend, Simon Thacker. I think you'd find very interesting. And we, we ended up talking a lot about Capoeira Angola as a particularly useful practice. Um, and what's really interesting about Capoeira is it's, um, you know, it's a martial art, but it's also a dance. It's right. also a musical system. It's also a, it's a very community oriented and it's a set of folklore. And ah, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. It's a really, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I haven't gone as deep as I would like into it, but it seems to me to be one of these places that, that, that hits a lot of what a movement culture could be. Yes. Can be a, a lens into these other things. And, uh, and then, um, you know, I think the Taoist traditions are also another place where you're getting a lot of these things coming together. Where you yep, have very tradition, much. Um, contemplative traditions, uh, community aspects potentially. Movement and, tradition, yeah, uh, very much. Tradition. Yeah. So, um, so I think that this is in some way a guide towards what, where we can go and yeah. where people can start to harvest these practices for themselves. Right, and and you know, I I know you're not doing this, and I'm not doing it. We're 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 not we're we're not nostalgic. We're not saying let's set up a Taoist utopia. We're trying to say, like, use that as a model and try and re-engineer things here that has an analogous functional organization for you. That's what we're saying. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there's much more to say. Um, <laughs> I've, I've taken enough of your time for today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, though, Rich. I, yes. mean, I really enjoyed this a lot. Uh, thank you so much. It's been so wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciated this conversation, and uh, I definitely, once again, feel like uh, it, it very much deserves a sequel because there's way too much to, uh, to, to try to unpack than we were able to in this, in this one. I, I, well, I mean, at some point, I'd be happy to talk again. I'm sure we're going to talk again because our paths are going to keep intersecting anyways. So Awesome. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Well, talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.